Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. I'm Andrew Wolford, a professor of sociology and criminology at the University of Manitoba, and I'm here with Morgan Sizlin Fontaine, a creative consultant, writer, and editor to business, nonprofit, and educational initiatives. Morgan is also the wife of Theodore Nijote Fontaine, who's a Seguin First Nation chief, knowledge keeper, elder, author, educator, and public speaker, and someone we hope uh, you'll know better by the end of this podcast. So, welcome, Morgan. Thank you, Andrew. Great to be here and have a chance to talk about Assiniboia and the, the book that we collaborated on with so many other people. It came to be such a great outcome. So I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you. Yeah, and of course, Theodore was a, a major contribute, contributor and a, a force behind the book in, in so many ways. The book is titled, Did You See Us? Reunion, Remembrance and Reclamation at an urban Indian residential school. And it is really the product of um, the work of the survivors themselves as they were brought together by Theodore Fontaine um, to discuss their memories of their time at Assiniboia and taking into account that they have very different memories. They came at different time periods, they had different background experiences and each experienced the school in a unique way. So. The text doesn't try to corral that into one single narrative of Assiniboia. Instead, mm -hmm. they all bring their different memories and visions of Assiniboia, and we let those sort of bounce off of each other, rub against echo. And even on rare occasions, there's some contradictions between the stories, but that's okay. That's... Yes, yes. And the people, the survivors who contributed, all you know, come from different communities as well. So their entire life experiences vary from one one to the next. Absolutely. And um, just a note for the listeners, you can probably tell we're doing this in a slightly different format. It's not a traditional interview uh, because we didn't feel that would be appropriate um, for our, our work process. This is a, a community-based project where Although Morgan and I did a lot of work in editing the book, um, we don't really claim any authorship. It's owned by the survivors themselves who uh, decided how the chapters would be organized, uh, what stories would be told. I mean, most of the content came through them. And uh, certainly Theodore, I know, also put in quite a bit of work in um, organizing and thinking through how we should present this book. He did, and he did uh, a lot of writing for this book that was, um, you know, I think really profound insight that he gives to the whole residential school story and process and also how it affected lives and communities. This is the book for anyone watching here. This is the cover of the book and uh, with has features a photo of the school on the front and there are photos included inside as well. It's a, it's a beautiful piece of work. Yeah. So Did You See Us is about uh, the residential school system in Canada. 
Uh, Theodore Fontaine is a survivor of the residential school system, um, which is one of the reasons his leadership was so profound um, in guiding this project. The residential school system operated in Canada from the early 1880s until roughly 1997. Well over 150,000 Indigenous children were removed from their families by the Canadian government and required to attend Christian-run residential schools. Uh, so these schools, in many ways, operated to try to destroy Indigenous cultures, Indigenous nations. And, um, you know, they did so in a variety of ways by removing the children, of course, from their homes, severing connection to families, devaluing their cultures. Uh, extreme violence was experienced by many of the young people at these schools. Um, and Theodore has written about that. And we'll talk a little bit about his other writings in his book, Broken Circle, in a moment. Um, but certainly it was a it was an experience that impacted upon uh, Ted. I'm going to probably slip into calling him Ted occasionally, Morgan, but uh, Theodore's life. That's okay. <laughs> Lots of people know him as, as Ted and others know him as Theodore. So Theodore was his um, given name. And um, but through his young adult life, he became and at school, he became he was his name was abbreviated to Ted by the other students, um, not by the teachers, but by the students themselves. And so it, through his early adult life, that was how he was known. So people all across Canada know him as Ted. And um, it's more since Broken Circle was published that people have come to understand his real name is Theodore. And he chose to use that name in all of his writing and all of his um, public speaking because it was it represented for him the wishes of his his parents when they named him and as opposed to you know the control exercised by residential the residential school system and people who dealt with him there yeah and i'd like to talk a little bit about broken circle because it really is a starting point um for this work because it's how i met theodore i was um um I have, um, I'm a genocide scholar, which is what they call the area of work. It's kind of a morbid name, but that's what they call the area, the discipline in which I, I operate. Um, and I became interested in residential schools uh, through conversations with other survivors that uh, made me rethink about what genocide entails and the ways in which uh, it can operate to destroy the cultural relations or bonds that connect group members to one another. And when I read Theodore's book, um, Broken Circle, The Dark Legacy of Indian Residential Schools, which was originally published in 2010, and then the second volume came out, in, was it 2022 or 2021? Um, 22. 2022. Um, and I just remember how vividly Theodore captures this experience of being disconnected from his language, his community, his family, his neighbors, and the uh, the consequences he expresses for this experience, uh, th this experience had on the rest of his life. Um, so when I reached out for him to be a keynote speaker at a, a conference I was organizing, I was, I was thrilled when he said yes. And then I was even more thrilled that he wanted to meet and have breakfast and chat about other things. So we chatted about a research project that I got him involved in related to building a virtual residential school um, through the memories of survivors. And from that, those conversations 
Theodore kept mentioning, you know, we got to do something about Assiniboia. No one knows about Assiniboia. When Assiniboia is here in Winnipeg, and no one knows that this residential mm. school existed within the city of Winnipeg. Uh, so, of course, he was referring to the Assiniboia res residential school, which was a Catholic run residential high school, um, which was located in a, a fairly well to do neighborhood of River Heights mm -hmm. and um, operated from 1958 to 1973. Theodore was in the, the initial class, the, the opening class of 1958. Um, until 1967, it operated as a residential school, so students both lived and did their schooling on site. Then after 1967, the students simply were hostile there and then went to uh, local non-Indigenous high schools. And over 900 uh, students passed through. And, and did you see us? We said over 850, but uh, as we keep getting deeper into the records, we're learning that more students who weren't captured in the initial record keeping uh, are coming forward. So we're now over 900 okay. students who passed through that school. So yeah, that's how I, I started with this because you know, Theodore's saying we got to do something about Assiniboia and um, there's a principle in doing uh, Indigenous research uh, that Sean Wilson describes as relational accountability, this idea that you know, you're not simply, uh, a research project isn't simply a one-off where you extract information from your research participants. It's a, it's a relationship and, and my work with Theodore really embodied that because Theodore was all about forming relationships with people and, and we yeah. formed that relationship and uh, certainly I felt accountable to him that if, if Ted's saying we need to do this then we need to do this so that's that's where I got started but um, Morgan maybe you want to talk a little bit more about how this all emerged from from Theodore's perspective. Sure well it's a really good description you've given and I know that he really treasured his relationship with you and that a lot of so much good came out of it. Um, he, you know, from the very beginning when I first knew him, which we were together more than 40 years, and um, from the very beginning, he talked about his residential school experiences. Early on, he could only talk about it in the most general of ways, you know, how many years, he was 10 years at the Fort Alexander Residential School uh, which was situated right on the Fort Alexander Reserve, where he lived, where his community, family, everybody that he loved was there. But he was isolated from them um, at that residential school. And through that whole 10 years, all of the, the destruction that he describes in Broken Circle um, took place, that disconnect from community. And um, he gives a good description that I think connects, I'm just gonna read this one little bit from Broken Circle, um, just to give context here for the residential school system itself. And the way that he described it is, the system was designed by the federal government to eliminate First Nations people from the face of our land and country, to rob the world of a people, simply because our values and beliefs did not fit theirs. The system was racist and based on the assumption that we were not human, but rather part animal to be de-savaged and molded into something we could never become, white. And that description is what really carried him through all the work that he did in trying to 
unfold the stories of residential, the true stories, the true history of residential schools as experienced by the children who attended them. And through the work that you did with him and through the, the work of all the survivors who uh, came from the Assiniboia school later, that history has been, has been told in part. There's, you know, there's much more to be said and many more stories to be from survivors yet to be collected. And that's really a, a part of a vision going forward is this work is not complete, it's, um, but it's a work in, in progress. And his, um, his early life in residential schools caused him to, it caused a great deal of difficulty in his, through his life. And out of the first class of survivors who attended the Assiniboia school, there were about 90, I think it's 99 students in that first year, 1958-59, um, first year of high school for those students who were brought in from communities all around Manitoba, Ontario, and some from other um, nearby areas as well. And he would look at that, he has the class picture of that first year of students, and he would look at that and with a great deal of sorrow and loss because he would he would look at them and he'd know what happened to them, most of them. And he'd, he'd say two thirds of those students did not survive early adulthood. They came out of a Sinaboya school um, and went on to try to live their lives, but with all the harms of their early res residential school experiences in school, schools like Fort Alexander, they carried so much grief and pain and the results of, of horrific abuse that was endured by these students that two thirds of that class, they, they didn't survive even to a middle age life. And he phrased that as being, you know, not only what a terrible loss in community and family and knowledge, oral history, all that was lost with them, but the contribution that they could have made to life in Canada, to society, economic, in, you know, economically and in terms of contributing their culture and their language, their abilities in, in Ojibwe and Cree and other languages, their knowledge of ancestral history, that all this was lost. And um, what, a, what a tremendous loss to Canada that this occurred through that more than a hundred years of residential school history. So when people ask, well, you know, why are we just hearing about this now? And why are people just talking about it now in this past you know, short number of years? Um, you know, the answers to that are given in the writings of and the speaking of survivors like Theodore who survived long enough to tell their story. And I think the, the vision going forward is to 
continue to use their words and their stories and to find other survivors who are still alive who can contribute to that that knowledge that the legacy is is that this never be forgotten and never happen again yeah and when you listen to those stories you really get uh, a sense of the the uniqueness of some of the experiences although it's all taking place within this overarching system designed to eliminate indigenous peoples and indigenous nations, um, you know, as groups practicing their cultures and their, their languages. Um, and yet, you know, at each school, there's different experiences, like the move from Fort Alexander to Assiniboia, for example, is one that's experienced by survivors like Theodora's, both, you know, a continuation of some of that attempted assimilation, but also they discover some new opportunities for relationships with building friendships, building like new familial relationships of um, maybe a little bit more freedom, although they're really still quite restricted, but um, it, it's a relative freedom to the extreme um, control they were under at a total institution like Fort Alex. And then at Assiniboia, they start to, you know, discover some new possibilities. You, you mentioned all the leaders that came out of there. Uh, when I look at the archives of some of the debates they're having in the class, they're actually, some of them are challenging their teachers and the assimilative lessons that are being delivered and, and starting to think critically about uh, Indigenous peoples and resisting that, that you know, attempt to assimilate them to the Canadian way. So it's a really complex story that comes through, comes out in Did You See Us? Absolutely. And they, you know, when in writing in Did You See Us, Theodore expressed a lot of concern about that, you know, that these, these stories need to be preserved. And a lot of non-Indigenous people question the validity of the stories of survivors. You know, really, did it happen that way? Was it really so bad? Um, one person even said to me, um, and this was you know, a person who fully knew about Theodore's life experience and how it had affected me as well as him and, you know, yeah, everyone in our family. And, and that person said to me, well, you know, many of us have had to overcome difficulties in childhood. And it doesn't, you know, it hasn't stopped us from living a good life. And I... This was a non-Indigenous person brought up in an urban, a rather wealthy urban neighborhood as well. And, you know, I, th I, I don't even recall what I said to her. I was so stunned that that would actually be said aloud. And yet it's a perception that we know lingers um, and, you know, somehow lives on with a life of its own that people either are are ignorant of the true history of residential schools and and or they choose to deny it. And um, the purpose, you know, in Did You See Us, the purpose is to bring those stories forward and um, that all the work that you've done, Andrew, and the whole group of survivors and uh, supporters, allies in the community who have helped has been to validate this truth and help to express it and help to bring it forward to others um, 
and in the community in Winnipeg, particularly the geographic area where the Assiniboia School was located, this has made a tremendous difference uh, in the in the general society in that community and in the schools in that community where students now are brought on out of their schools to go over to the site of the Assiniboia school and stand on that land and listen to what happened there. And, and yet Theodore and others refer to the Assiniboia school experience as, you know, he, he used the phrase a breath of fresh air because out of compared to his school life at Fort Alexander, Assiniboia was a, a much safe, more safe and better place to be, a place where um, the, I won't say that, I don't know about uh, potential abuse or issues that did still arise there. There were certainly difficulties. It's not to say it was all wonderful, but the the staff there made sure, first of all, that the students had enough food to eat, which was never the case at Fort Alexander, that they had some freedoms to go out outside and not be monitored and disciplined every moment that they were outside. They had the freedom to speak their own language among themselves, languages among themselves and on the playing fields. And they had um, in, as a bit of time went by, they had the opportunity also to leave the the compound, which was based was surrounded by barbed wire, and to you know cross the road, go out into the community a little bit, and have a bit of interaction in the community. Um, and through the work of uh, the survivors and yourself, and getting together the reunions and the work done that is uh, related in Did You See Us? People in the community came to understand the truth of this. They met survivors. They toured the classrooms building during the, the last large reunion. They heard survivors telling their stories. And, you know, when you sit and listen face to face, you, you can't deny that it, you can't deny it anymore. <laughs> So it's made a tremendous difference in this community. And I expect this book has made a big difference in a lot of communities where it's been brought forward as an example of really good work being done to overcome to some extent the harms of residential schools and to build reconciliation between indigenous and non-indigenous peoples. And that's a major theme in Did You See Us? All of the work was aimed at reconciliation. Yeah, reconciliation, um, presence, you know, the idea that the school would now be seen would be visible. I mean, when you when you talk about those denialist uh, discourses that unfortunately still circulate in Canada, this idea of like, you know, why don't they just get over it? I know that was one statement that was particularly hurtful to Theodore. I mean, you know, in part because it suggests, you know, that there's a weakness amongst the survivors that they're not, you know, strong enough to just move on, which is, you know, really anyone who knows and works with survivors knows how strong these people are and have to be. Uh, Theodore always spoke about being a victor, um, you, know, the, mm -hmm. you know, what he had to 
overcome in order to get to where he was, you know, being speaking about a story literally thousands of times, telling classrooms and other groups, you know, having to relive that and recount that. I mean, when I just think of the reunions, but particularly the reunion in 2017, mm -hmm. um, the strength of the survivor group and their families and not just meeting as a group to get together to live old, relive old memories together but opening that very private intimate gathering to the community the way they did uh, required an incredible amount of strength and to have us yes. all there present with them and in part so that they could be they could be seen um so you know when i think about kind of the, one of the major themes of the book in addition to reconciliation is that that notion of of being seen of being visible and I still, I think I have to always give credit to um, my partner, Jessica, for coming up with that title since I uh, proposed yes. so many bad titles before she sort of saw <laughs> through my academic jargon where I'm using words like presence. And I think, I think I even mentioned specters once, which was horrible. Um, and she just said, oh, you see us? And I was like, oh yeah, that, that is much better. Um, and I remember when you called and, and told Theodore that Jessica had presented that or suggested that potential title and Theodore and I both went it's perfect it's exactly the right title it says so much it just relates exactly that feeling of, that the survivors have of wanting not you know that this true history not be hidden and that they as children be hidden no longer, that their voices that were never allowed to be heard, be heard. And, you know, if, if anyone has ever lived in a situation where they were not able to speak up, not able to speak their truth, if they had to hide or be hidden away for any kind of reasons, they'll understand that, that to, it, it means your whole identity is, is buried it's you know forced into a dark place and the door closed that those identities were not worthy to be out in plain view in the public and so for for theodore and the students when they talked about that title and the whole that whole theme through the book it was so important that this be just laid wide open that every story be heard, every voice be heard, that every every individual be given time to be heard. Never rushed, never told, you know, you have two minutes to speak, that whatever they wanted to do and say would be would be brought into this whole big project and, and fulfilled. And I know it just was such a feeling of satisfaction, all the work on this for Theodore to, to feel that all those years of being completely locked up at, in Fort Alexander with no voice, no family, no one to speak to, not even able to speak to the other, other students there, um, to be able to finally express what happened and what it meant to them and, and how hard they've had to work to overcome that and be out in the world in a, in a 
way that others take for granted those freedoms to walk around those freedoms to be with your family choose who you're going to be with and where you're going to be and to have you know the the ability to earn money and live well in the world and look after yourself and build your own family all those things that were denied to so many so i think that the lasting legacy of you know did you see us now you now you can see who they are and what happened and what is happening and how their lives are going forward and all of the contributions that have been made by those survivors contributions made to literature and the arts and music and all the things that we we treasure including the true history of this country yeah it's um i mean the even though we didn't try to you know structure or, or force a single narrative on the book and we also were very light in editing people's chapters so that their own voices um, came through you still mm -hmm. see this um, theme of being seen or not being seen run throughout and i don't i don't want to provide many spoilers for did you see us because i hope people will go out and read the book if they haven't already but i mean there's mm -hmm you know, that moment where you and Theodore first see each other, which is recounted in the book so, so beautifully. And <laughs> I think that's a story if someone has to buy the book if they want to, if they want to. <laughs> True. Um, but even, you know, you, you mentioned the, the the cooks and the people who were providing food for the young people at Assiniboia, how, um, you know, they were, according to federal government per capita policy, they were supposed to be feeding these young teenagers, really, at the same level that they would feed a seven or eight year old at a, a regular residential school. There was very little money provided. Mm -hmm. And year by year, the cooks and the principals uh, violated that and, and in a way saw the students and saw how hungry uh, they were. And there's mm -hmm. another wonderful story from one of the former cooks about leaving bread out for the boys, which again, I think people should have to buy the book to hear that story, but <laughs> she did see them in that way. She did, um, you know, get a sense of their, their presence. And I think that kind of also leads into a third theme, which kind of um, also draws us into discussing the, the challenges and what remains to be done, because um, this idea of reclamation is also a key theme in the book, you know, not just being yeah. seen, but then being able to reclaim in that space of the school for the survivors. And I know Theodore kept copious notes of things and dreams that he wanted to realize and uh, hoped to achieve before or even after he passed. He still is, uh, you know, in a way, directing and leading us. And uh, what are your thoughts on what's left to do? Well, first of all, the um, Assiniboia Legacy Group, uh, to which you have provided, you know, immense amounts of leadership and coordination to a group of survivors and supporters from various places who have worked to put together the commemoration part of this work. And that's very important. And the, the commemoration that exists now that's already been installed, the monument of the records of the students who were there um, is extremely an extremely important 
first big step in the reclaiming of that space there. And the classrooms building still exists and um, is occupied now by the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. And I know from the discussions with them that, you know, they're very, they have all along been very supportive of this work and hosted the, um, the last reunion that was held there and allowed their, you know, all of the visitors for that, those special events to see the building and come and tour. There needs to be much more of that going forward. The classrooms building is, is what's left of the original Assiniboia school. Sadly, the whole residence building um, was destroyed some years ago, quite a number of years ago. But the classrooms building is there and Theodore used to always point up to the window where he sat in the classroom. And that window overlooks the playing fields that are between the building and the river. And those playing fields were to him and I think to all the survivors, very sacred land. It was where they were able to get outside and do what they wanted to do. And um, they played hockey, they played baseball, they, they tried to learn to dance, although I don't think it was terribly successful that effort. <laughs> but they, it's a, that land is where they found, uh, he described that as their first taste of freedom. And it was really important to them, the, the survivors who worked on Did You See Us and work in the legacy group, extremely important that that land be preserved and you know not given up for condo development or <laughs> other purposes. And so the, uh, the city of Winnipeg has established that as park land that um, is named in Theodore's name, which it, he would be very proud to know that. And um, when people come there, there, there will be in the, the spring to come, uh, there will be a, uh, an interpretive panel there that will describe a little bit about the school that stood there and the students there and why it, why this park is named for one of the students and why this land matters so much. And Theodore wrote very beautifully in Did You See Us about that land and what it meant to him and expressed it in one of the ways he talked about it is that the spirits of all the students, um, 900 some students who attended Assiniboia. The spirits are there of those who passed and the spirits of those who are still alive as well. Those memories are on that land. They're very, in, they're very sacred memories because so many were, lost their lives uh, early, as I said, in, in adulthood. And many now are are being lost to to us through age and illness and other things. Um, and the 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 vision that he held was that this all this work would continue, that the engagement with the community, for one thing, would continue, that there would be future events involving people from River Heights and the uh, neighboring areas there and 
people who were, um, you know, no, there's not many perhaps who still remember that there was, or even never knew that there was a residential school there. I know in 2017, many of the people from the community who came said that they had never known that it was there or they knew there was a school there, but they didn't know what it was or why or who was there or anything. So um, for that, that history to continue to be told for visitations to the classrooms building and to that land to, to take place. And he envisioned that land as being a place for community Indigenous and non-Indigenous community to use for celebrations, for sports, for powwows, for ceremonies, for special events of all kinds. That that's where um, that's where those memories and those spirits sit and would be honored by that land and their lives there being um, being recalled as ceremonies take place there and in some part, particularly indigenous ceremonies of remembrance, powwows, things that are joyous celebrations as well as somber celebrations um, and educational, always educational visits. And he spoke in classrooms and schools all over Canada um, through his the last 10 years of his life, he dedicated his life to education about residential schools. And this history captured at Assiniboia is very unique in Canada. The, um, that it was an urban school and that it took place when it did is very critical, a, a very critical turning point in the um, evolution, if we can call it that, of the residential school system. And for, for this land to be used in those ways and for future education, educational initiatives at all levels across Canada take place that bring these things to light and involve survivors and intergenerational survivors. And I know that, you know, in today's environment, he would be very much wanting this to support the work of murdered and missing indigenous men and women and girls, and boys and two-spirit people and others, um, that, it, that opportunities be taken to involve the non-indigenous community very heavily in activities at the site there, that an education center be established to hold the artifacts and the me memories, uh, the stories of survivors, photographs, that things be collected and not just be lost, you know, and people have things in their basements and attics and um, things that they experienced at residential schools and that those be preserved. And some were preserved through the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission but there is much more that can be done in that in that way and be used for education. And one of the um, teachers in Winnipeg that he worked very closely with suggested an education center be built on the site there and house those artifacts and be used for 
that kind of um, sharing and celebration, storytelling, educational visits, visits by survivors, um, and opportunities for other ideas to be brought forward as well that would support that whole concept of reconciliation among peoples. Um, for example, he spoke often at uh, Canadian citizenship ceremonies to new Canadians families and learned in talking with those individuals before and after the ceremonies that their knowledge of the Indigenous peoples of Canada was next to nothing. That in the work that they did to apply and learn to become Canadian citizens, the information was provided in a it's a study guide produced by the federal government with almost there's a couple of paragraphs about the indigenous peoples of Canada um, and so for people at those citizenship ceremonies to hear from him about residential schools and what this true history is they were you know as shocked and appalled as any Canadian would be and um, wanted to know more, and he would encourage them to engage with the Indigenous community. You know, go to ceremonies, go to powwows, go to places where Indigenous people gather and make friends. Be part of that community and invite them to be part of your community as well. That's the larger vision, is that these people from all different cultures who live here in Canada, whether they've been here for a hundred years or they've just arrived, that those relationships to be built, including indigenous peoples, and that that be a priority of, of all of that work. Yeah, you really give a sense of, you really give us a sense of how, you know, did you see us as just part of a much broader, more ambitious vision that Theodore and many of the survivors had I mean, when mm -hmm. I first met with them, um, the book was actually the third of their suggestions. You know, they had suggestions that really were about connecting with their former classmates and reclaiming that school property to make sure that it was a lasting um, testament to their existence, their presence there, and um, their experiences. And that, it, you know, that the Assiniboia Residential School Legacy Group, which is the group that Ted formed and led and, until he passed away, um, that they be, you know, in a way, have a voice in these broader discussions of, mm -hmm. of reconciliation and relationship building in Canada. And so I think, you know, the other things we've done are, have been, you know, are combined with the book that, that are coupled with the book that are important aspects of the book that aren't necessarily <laughs> recorded in the book, like renaming that play those playing fields um the playing fields after Assiniboia were closed were named after Arthur Wellington Ross who was a politician entrepreneur someone who engaged in some fairly shady practices he he, he appeared to have some insider information about when Métis script was being released and he would send script runners to go and buy that mm -hmm. so uh you know a lot of his property gain and his wealth was accumulated through some pretty, you know, unethical practices, to say the least, to put it mildly. Um, and so that this playing field was named after him. I mean, it was a major moment, I think, of reclamation to 
say no, it's going to be named after our leader, um, you know, a survivor who has helped establish the memory of this this residential school. So Theodore Nijote Park, Fontaine Park, now sits mm -hmm. where Wellington Park used to used to sit. Yes. And um, the the commemorative marker as well, which is now out, out in front along Academy Road, which is a fairly busy thoroughfare. Uh, leading to the St. James Bridge, as well as uh, Keniston Road and some other fairly high-trafficked areas of Winnipeg. Um, when we originally were in talks to create this commemorative site, um, the suggestion from various, not just from government, but from other actors within the commemorative community and the Indigenous community was to place it back by the river. Uh, and Theodore just said, no, it can't be back by the river. The river wasn't even part of our, our school property. And that's just hiding us again. People, you know, you right. know, maybe seen by joggers, bike riders, dog walkers occasionally, but it's not going to be there for as many people as possible to see it. And so um, I should mention the work of architect Herbert Enns in mm -hmm. his role in um, sitting very patiently with the survivor group, including Theodore, to talk about the design of that commemorative site and what would be featured in this this monument where various various markers, um, some say they're shaped like arrowheads or, or teepees, but they all sort of point away from the school in directions, uh, in the four directions, and, and the they're actually covered in the in the, the colors of the medicine wheel and placed in a circle. So these were all elements that the survivors uh, suggested to Herbert and he he worked very carefully to to make sure that, that their vision would be there in this commemorative site, which now as people drive by it and um, you know we've got the the primary site is established. We've still got some boardwalks and benches and um, native grasses to plant and other things that are going to be put in in the year to come. But um, you know, now when you drive by there, you see this monument and, and hopefully people pull over and, and uh, mm -hmm. take a look and we'll learn a little bit more about the school if they didn't, if they haven't learned about it already. Absolutely. And I think as events are planned on that land, they, you know, people will be attracted to that commemorative marker and all the, the names of every student who attended are through Herb's beautiful work are inscribed on paving stones within the marker, every student's name and the community that they come from. And I remember when I first saw that, the, dis, the drawings for it even, how I was struck by the fact that the markers aim toward the communities where the students come from. So where Theodore is, where the paving stone with his name is included along with others is facing in the direction of Fort Alexander and now Saguin First Nation and the community like many indigenous communities in Canada have reclaimed their community name in their own language so Saguin is an Ojibwe word which means at the mouth of the at the mouth of the river where the Winnipeg River goes into Lake Winnipeg and so the, the original community names are all there in the languages that, um, their own languages. So it, it's extremely important. It's, it's done in a way that 
respects languages and the geographic accuracy of where these lives began and in some cases where they ended as well. And um, as students come to this place and have a chance to visit this and have, there needs to be, you know, interpretation. You need to be people there as interpreters. That's another element that will be needed in future to guide people through this and help people to really understand what they're looking at there. And not only the marker, but all the significance of the classrooms building and the land. And, um, you know, to realize that they're, they're honoring lives that um, were not seen in the, as children, those lives that were hidden and the fact that they were allowed to be seen when they got to Assiniboia. And now this work is done to make sure that the memory is lasting. These will not be forgotten children. Absolutely. I think that's a great place for us to um, conclude our conversation because, um, you know, I think hopefully people see that did you see us as part of a, a, a larger ongoing project that, um, you know, the challenge is to really keep going and to make sure that this reclamation of the space directs it towards good use in educating people, providing a, a, spa a gathering space for survivors, intergenerational survivors, um, non-Indigenous people all to come together and learn about this history and then move forward together uh, and form mm -hmm. new relationships in the way that, that Theodore taught us so well. So Yes, exactly. It gives a lot of hope for the future, for a better future, for Canada, for all Canadians, the opportunity to have um, you know, a more inclusive and respectful community. So we can all contribute to that and do the best we can to make that reality using the tools that survivors have, have left and given us. So thank you very much, Andrew, for inviting me to be part of the discussion and certainly encourage everyone who hears this to make sure they get a copy of that book and Did You See Us and also Broken Circle. The two are very connected and will give uh, such a good understanding of what we've been talking about today and, and what the survivors have, have said. It really matters and matters not only to them, but to all of us. So thank you. Thank you, Morgan. Thanks for talking to me. And, and, and thank you to Ted for Theodore for all he's done and mm -hmm. his legacy. Yeah. Give him thanks every day. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.